0: Hello and Namaste. You're listening to the Science Factory. I am Madhavan. We publish a new episode here every week discussing interesting concepts and research from the world of biology and medicine. If that's something you're interested in, please subscribe to Science Factory on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, Amazon Music, GeoSavan, Ghana, or any other app where you listen to podcasts. In this episode, We tell you why the Delta variant of COVID is more effective than the original strain, why COVID is severe in some people and not so in others, and how this pandemic is affecting our sleep and the environment. We'll also discuss how scientists are trying to reverse age-related memory loss, a potential treatment that has been developed against multiple cancers, and a deep dive into the mechanism by which the world's most beloved narcotic, coffee, works. Let's start off with some COVID news. Remember a couple of months back when we were in the middle of the second wave of COVID in India, the number of cases at the peak were like five or six times higher than during the first wave. Latest research from China may be able to throw some light on what caused this massive spike in the cases during the second wave. You see, the second wave was primarily due to a variant of SARS-CoV-2 virus, that is the virus that causes COVID, This variant of SARS-CoV-2 is called the Delta variant. As per researchers from China, this variant produces 1000 times more virus particles than the variant that caused the initial COVID wave. This means the virus was able to infect many more lung cells in a much shorter time, lessening the time from initial infection to a severe condition. These observations are based on daily testing of 167 hospitalized patients infected with the Delta variant. Researchers also note that the Delta variant could be detected in infected patients just 4 days after exposure compared to about 6 days in the original virus strain. That means the virus was taking only about half the time to grow and replicate to detectable levels than the original strain. This combination of shorter replication time and higher viral load means that the virus was able to spread much faster and to many more people. During this COVID pandemic, a common observation has been how some people become severely sick requiring ICU and oxygen support, while most get only mild symptoms that can be treated at home. Many others are even totally asymptomatic. This kind of a difference in the severity of the disease seems to be happening among people with similar age, pre-existing conditions, or lifestyle, etc. Even in the same house, one person may get a severe infection, while another person with a similar kind of age and health profile could be asymptomatic. This pattern has been a mystery since the beginning of the pandemic. A severe infection is caused when the virus enters the lungs and starts invading lung cells. As long as the virus is restricted to the respiratory tract, it results only in mild disease. You may remember in the last episode of Science Factory, I told you how the hair-like projections on the cells lining the respiratory tract called cilia are destroyed before the virus manages to enter the lungs. That means, in some infected people, virus is not able to destroy the cilia lining the respiratory tract while in others it is successful. Why does this happen? Why does the virus manage to break the barrier in only some of the infected people but not the others? We did not have an answer to this till now. But recently published findings of researchers from MIT, Harvard Medical School and University of Mississippi throw some light on this mystery. These researchers analyzed the genes expressed in the cells collected during nose swabs to test for COVID. It turns out, that in individuals who later on developed a severe COVID infection, the genes coding for proteins involved in antiviral response are severely underexpressed. This is, despite these individuals having equal or even higher load of virus compared to those who get a mild disease. What is to be noted is that this analysis was done on samples collected much before the patient moved into a severe disease phase, that means It is possible to identify those who could potentially develop a severe infection down the line much before that happens and preventive action could be taken to boost the antiviral activity in such people. In the last episode of Science Factory, we discussed how the pandemic is impacting the mental health of people. We discussed a study that reported the case of worsening eating disorders among adolescents in America. Today, we have some more evidence supporting this from the work of researchers in University of Rome who looked at sleep and dream activity among Italians during and after the COVID lockdowns. The participants in this study woke up from sleep more number of times during the night, had more difficulty going to sleep, had higher frequency of lucid dreams and remembered those dreams better during the lockdowns. This indicates a lower quality of sleep among these participants. Additionally, it was also noticed that people had more dreams including about being in crowded places once the lockdown was relaxed. The dream recall frequency is normally associated with traumatic events and researchers note that observation of the same pattern is indicative that the pandemic is an event of collective trauma. As the pandemic is reaching close to the two-year mark, In the middle of all the medical, economic, societal and mental health devastation it has caused, something that has not got adequate attention is the environmental cost of this pandemic, especially the one due to extensive use of disposable personal protective equipment like masks, plastic face shields and gowns. According to one recent study from USA, if a new N95 mask was used by healthcare workers for every patient that they took care of, that would generate about 84 million kilograms of waste and cost about $6.38 billion in just 6 months time. Preuse of the masks after decontamination with either UV germicidal irradiation or hydrogen peroxide vapors Would reduce the waste generated to about 18.6 million kilograms and 13 million kilograms respectively and the cost would be reduced to 1.4 billion dollars and 1.65 billion dollars respectively there is no doubt how crucial masks and other types of personal protective equipment are during situations like this pandemic especially for frontline healthcare workers But if there are effective ways to reduce their use or to reuse them without compromising on safety, it is important that we explore those options. Otherwise, we will eventually overcome the pandemic but will be left with another not easily solvable problem of managing medical and plastic waste. Moving on from COVID to some other interesting developments in biomedical research. One of the issues associated with aging is the memory loss. A reason for this is the reduction in what is called neuroplasticity. Neuroplasticity is the ability of nerves in the brain to undergo changes, form new connections, etc. This helps us to learn new things, form new experiences, and save those learnings and experiences. As we age, this ability of the brain slowly decreases, eventually resulting in memory loss. This course of events was still now thought to be irreversible, but according to some exciting new research published in the journal Molecular Psychiatry, researchers may have figured out a way to undo this, at least in mice. Some of the nerve cells or neurons that are present in the brain are surrounded by a matrix made of proteins and sugars that supports and stabilizes these neurons. This matrix is called the perineuronal net. By manipulating the different components of this perineuronal net, researchers were able to reverse the memory loss observed in 20-month-old mice and restored it to the levels observed in 6-month-old mice. They specifically targeted a component called chondroitin-6-sulphate. Age-related reduction of chondroitin-6-sulphate correlates to memory decline. When the amount of this molecule in brain was decreased, memory loss started in mice as early as 11 weeks old, and on artificial boosting of its level, the memory was restored to normal levels. This could be a very critical insight that could help in development of potential strategies to treat age-related memory loss with drugs that target the perineuronal net. The world is currently too occupied with the COVID pandemic, and for a good reason. But there is another longest and ever-growing threat to public health cancer we have effective vaccines and even a more or less standardized treatment protocols for covid but cancer is a totally different beast forget vaccines there are so many different types of cancers and their treatment protocols are so painful and leave an emotional scar on the survivors for rest of their lives normally The growth and division of cells in our body is very strictly controlled. At a very basic level, cancer is nothing but a condition where the cells in a part of our body escape this control to grow and divide in an uncontrolled manner. In a recent paper published in the journal Cancer Discovery, researchers from Mount Sinai Hospital in New York and the University of North Carolina have claimed to have developed a molecule called MS21 which causes degradation of an enzyme called protein kinase B. This enzyme is thought to be involved in the development of many different types of cancers. This development is significant because of its potential for treatment of multiple types of cancers. In the episode where we discussed microbiome, I told you how some of the initial microorganisms we acquire are from mother's skin during breastfeeding. It is also known that there are certain types of antibodies which we can acquire only from breastfeeding. There is new research now showing that breastfeeding could help children with maintaining a lower blood pressure. When researchers measured blood pressure of 3-year-old children, it was found that those who were breastfed even if, even if for only a few days very early after birth, such children had lower blood pressure than those who never received breast milk. This study was conducted by researchers at McMaster University in Canada as part of Canadian Healthy Infant Longitudinal Development Study and included 2,382 children. In a recent study, researchers from University of South Australia, University of Exeter and University of Cambridge looked at how high coffee consumption could affect the brain size and risk of dementia and stroke. Consumption of more than six cups of coffee per day appears to be associated with a smaller brain volume, increased risk of dementia, and had no effect on the occurrence of stroke. Like me, if you are a fan of the American sitcom The Big Bang Theory, you may remember that episode where Sheldon drinks coffee for the first time and feels so energized that he starts to think of himself as the DC comic superhero Flash who can run very fast. In this episode's deep dive, we examine how coffee works, if it really wakes us up or makes us feel energized, and what other effects it may have on our body in addition to shrinking the brain. The main ingredient of coffee, the one responsible for all its supposed useful effects, is a substance called caffeine. Considering the amount of coffee consumed every day Caffeine is probably the most widely used narcotic substance in the world. By some estimates, the average amount of caffeine consumed by a person in a day is about 200 milligrams and more than 1,20,000 tons of caffeine is consumed worldwide every single year. Like any other drug, overdosing on caffeine could be dangerous and could lead to death if consumed more than 10 grams at a time. Before we dive into how consumption of coffee affects our brain and other parts of the body, a little background information will be useful. The basic unit of organization of our body is called the cell. Every cell is surrounded by a limiting perimeter called the cell membrane which is made of fat molecules. Technically, uh, they are called lipids. The cell membrane separates the inside of a cell from its outside. Because the contents of a cell are water-soluble, as you know, our body is made of 60 to 70% water and all that, the cell contents cannot mix with the lipids and hence cannot cross the cell membrane and wander out of the cell. Whenever a message has to be conveyed from outside the cell to the inside, like say, if a cell needs to die because it has become cancerous, messenger molecules called ligands are released. These ligands bind to proteins embedded in the cell membrane called the receptors like the name sounds think of receptors as a sort of receptacles or cups that are distributed all over the cell membrane to which the ligands stick once this happens receptors undergo some changes which in turn activates a series of steps that bring about the desired effect like say cell death in in the case of a cancerous cell This sequence of steps from ligand binding all the way leading to the final effect is called the signal transduction. One type of receptor that is prominently found in the brain cells is a protein called adenosine receptor. One of the processes that the adenosine receptor participates in is control of sleep. As the name suggests, the ligand for the adenosine receptor is a signaling molecule called adenosine. This molecule is accumulated in the brain during the hours that someone is awake and when it binds to the receptor, it induces sleep. Caffeine found in coffee too has the ability to bind to adenosine receptors. This prevents adenosine from binding to its receptor and sleepiness cannot be induced by the messenger even though it has accumulated in the brain. That's how coffee makes us not sleepy. According to a study from Cornell University, caffeine can mess with not only sleep but also the sense of taste. Experiments conducted as part of this study showed that consumption of caffeine could significantly alter the perception of sweetness. However, there was no difference among the study participants in how they perceived salty, bitter or sore tastes. Two sets of participants were asked to drink coffee either with or without caffeine, that is, Caffeinated or decaf coffee Those in the caffeinated group felt that their drink was about 25-30% to less sweet than those who had decaf coffee. When the two groups were given a sugar solution after drinking the coffee, the decaf group's sweetness rating was still higher than that of the caffeinated group. That means, even sugar seems less sugary after drinking coffee. It turns out that the adenosine receptor that causes sleep in the brain is also found in the taste buds on the tongue. Researchers have concluded that the caffeine in coffee binds to those adenosine receptors in the taste buds like in the brain and suppresses the sensing of sweetness either of coffee itself or of any other food consumed soon after that. So next time you dunk a biscuit in a cup of coffee remember that you are not doing complete justice. To his days. That's all in this episode of Science Factory. Hope you found it useful. If you wish to go through the original papers referenced in this episode, links are available in the description. If you like what you heard, share this with your family and friends. Before you leave, please subscribe to the podcast so you are alerted whenever a new episode is published. Just search for Science Factory in whichever app you use to listen to podcasts. Till next time. Stay safe, stay healthy and be happy.